All right, all right, all right. Let's get fired up here. Maximum freedom. Read. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Stay on target. Maximum freedom. Read Rothbard. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Actual Anarchy Podcast and happy Mother's Day. This is our Mother's Day special. It also happens to fall on a Sunday, which is our normal posting day, so it's just another normal show for us. Only it will be focused on mothers. Speaking of mothers, how you doing, my motherfucking friend, Robert? What's up, dog? What's up, my little freedom babies? Doing great, buddy. You know, I was looking at the news, and I was just super happy to see that, like, one of the top headlines is, watch out, avocado hand injuries on the rise. And I wish I lived in a world where that was, like, the number one concern that everybody had to worry about was cutting avocados and all the dangers associated with that that'd just be that'd just be a nice nice little world wouldn't have the state and you just have to worry about properly cutting avocados and uh with that happy mother's day happy mother's day you know i'm sure the free market would provide a solution to that at some point just like all the contrived problems that the status will come up with The market will find an answer. As it does, babies. So I don't know if I mentioned this earlier. We've been on the phone for quite a while already. But this is the actual Anarchy Podcast where we talk about movies from a Rothbardian anarcho-capitalist perspective. And because it's Mother's Day, we're going to do a movie about mothers called Throw Mama from the Train, the Danny DeVito, Billy Crystal vehicle from 1987. Uh, and just so you know, we run actualanarchy.com and readrothbard.com. There's books, articles, lectures, all sorts of things by Murray and Rothbard and a bunch of other writers, uh, including present day writers that do a lot of work for us. We write about what actually, uh, occurs, uh, under, uh, philosophy of anarchy. We look at the non-aggression principle, the morality, and Austrian economics. Uh, what else do we do, Robert? We hang out. We take baths, not together. And um, we do other things like uh, complain and talk and hold hands. Um, did you know, when you suggested doing this movie for this episode, did you know it was about a terrible mother? So are you trying to say that all mothers are terrible, Daniel? Well, I'm not going to go with the leftist tactic of driving everyone into separate groups that are inherently antagonistic towards each other. I I believe that people are individuals and that they should be judged on their own merits. And the merits of this particular mother are not very good. So what was the impetus to suggest this movie for this episode? Well, as you know, we are now using the Voodoo system, the app and the website to be able to share movies with each other. And this was... Shilling for big voodoo now, huh? Shown for Big Voodoo, just like we're shown for Big Woods in one of our previous episodes. And 
this movie was listed under the Mother's Day, like, Watch It On Us Mother's Day specials. Like, they had a list of 80 movies, and this was one of them. I think it got caught in their algorithm because it says Mama in the in the name of the movie. So I thought, I remember this movie when I was growing up, and it was funny. I hadn't seen it in probably 15 years, maybe longer. And I was like, hey, let's do this movie. It's It's available to watch on the video. And... Lo and behold, it was actually quite good. I was very entertained watching this film. This film. Mm, yo, Tama Tambi Tambi in, babies. It was good. Uh, it was very funny. It was far funnier than I remembered it being, um, or had forgotten it being. Let's put it that way. And it, it absolutely holds up. The, the humor holds up. Um, it's like character-driven, uh, funny stuff. So it's not like timely shit. Um, the it gets into some like movie tropes in like the action scenes and that sort of thing. And that, that, that stuff didn't work as well, especially these days. But, uh, the comedy, the comedy holds up. It's, it's uh, good stuff. So do you want to give the, uh, the rundown on what, what this movie's about? Yeah. I'll just read up the, uh, the Google business here. So this got a 61% Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, Roger Ebert was kind of middling on it back in uh, 1987. But the description reads as thus. Larry, played by Billy Crystal, an author with a cruel ex-wife, Margaret, who's played by Kate Mulgrew, who happens to be red in the uh, Orange is the New Black Netflix series. Uh, He teaches a writing workshop where Owen, played by Danny DeVito, one of his students, is fed up with his domineering mother, played by Anne Ramsey, who also is the mother in the Fratelli gang in The Goonies. When Owen watches a Hitchcock classic that seems to mirror his own life, he decides to put the movie's plot into action and offers to kill Margaret, Billy Crystal's uh, ex-wife, if Larry promises to murder his mom. Before Larry gets a chance to react to the plan, it seems that Owen has already sealed Margaret's fate. And that is the description. Uh, Fairly accurate. Mm -hmm. Without giving away anything. Yeah, without giving away too much. I like how the movie opens, and it totally reminded me of you. And so when uh, when I watched it again, I was like, oh, man, I'm glad I picked this one because I can kind of pick on Robert about this. Because Billy Crystal's struggling with writer's block, and it's this cutscene montage thing where he's, like, struggling to get even the first sentence of his new book written. <laughs> he gets stuck on The Night Was, and he's constantly taking the paper out and crumpling it up and throwing it in the garbage or uh, he's, you know, getting up to like make tea. And then the next cut scene, he's like pouring liquor into the tea. And uh, you can tell he's really struggling with this writer's block issue. And I always envisioned that that's how you're writing your book. Um, <laughs> so I thought that was kind of funny. Yes. I immediately fell in love with the opening of this movie um, because it's so, my situation it, it just hit me right right in the field um he's typing on this typewriter because it's you know 1987 and he's yeah crumpling up piece of paper after piece of paper because i mean probably you know you'd like pull out some white out and make a few corrections here and there but really that's what they used to do is just write straight off you know from beginning to end 
And these days I write, I, I, I could never have done it that way. I don't think maybe I could have, but uh, me, maybe I'm just too spoiled, but I'll just write, you know, a sentence here and there and plug it in somewhere or not, or delete this part and rewrite this paragraph and cut and paste that. And I mean, it would have been a nightmare back in the day to write the way I write, but uh, I could totally sympathize with his writer's block. Um, it was a bit heavy handed. I mean, I can't imagine totally getting stuck on the very first sentence like that. I mean, at least you'd write like a, an outline and then work off that outline because it seems like he knows what he wants to talk about because he said he's been working on this book for a couple of years now and it's, he knows the setting and he knows what it's going to be about. Well, you'd have something to work off, but, uh, for the sake of the movie, it was a fun scene and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. You know, that's an interesting point that you brought up because he, he already kind of had the idea of the, what the story was going to be about. He knew the setting, he knew kind of what was going to happen, but he, he held on to not even starting, uh, waiting for the perfect words to open it with. And I think that that, for me, even if you don't know exactly what you want to do, sometimes you just got to start doing it and then you optimize and you work from there. And then, you know, you could go back and, and rework the, uh, the very beginning and the very end, you know, to get that perfect, um, alliterative cadence that he was desiring, right? Like he seemed to have in his mind like some classic openings from other novels and he was like, I want something that's really powerful and impactful to happen. And he yet, he, he let that hold him back, waiting for that perfect uh, opening. Right. And so much of my experience in writing is that you just start writing and you'll discover what you're necessarily going to say or you're going to write about. And so you may not have the best perfect opening line, best perfect sentence right now, but once you find out what the book is actually about by having written it, then then you'll be in a far better position to figure out what the best possible or the best line would be for that book. Because you don't even necessarily know what the book is about when you first start writing it. You may have an idea. You may have all kinds of beats and things that are going to happen in the book. You may even have... Uh, a driving like tone or a driving like, what is this story about? This is about one man's struggle to do blah, blah, blah. But you learn so much in the act of writing that you're going to be in a far better position to figure out and decide what the best possible way to say a thing for that book is after you've written a whole bunch of it. And then you would having written jack shit of it. And like you said, just start doing a thing <laughs> and uh, you'll be in a, you'll be in a better place than waiting for the perfect inspiration to hit you because then you'll never get anything done. Yeah. And then you learn so much in the act of doing and, and even when you run into failure uh, in trying to overcome it, you know, you got to figure out a way to solve whatever issue that's come up. And if you never got started and you're waiting for the perfect, um, you know, the perfect knowledge, the, the knowing exactly what you're doing before even beginning. Um, it's like an impossibility because there's so many things you can't know from reading a book or, or watching a video or, or even watching someone else uh, until you actually are confronted with those issues yourself and you have to figure out how to get around them or, or overcome them. Absolutely. And in my own writing, 
um, I liken it to just a series of problem solving. Uh, when you get to a certain point in the story, you'll think of a thing and you'll reason and you'll go, oh, that doesn't make sense for this person or that person or this doesn't exactly make sense. I want it to happen or be, it makes sense for this character. But as I've written this other character in this other situation, it's not going to work out like time-wise or character-wise or you know any kind of motivation-wise at all. And you have to figure out ways to solve that problem. And, and, and it's just like thousands of those situations in, in, in writing a story. So depending on the length of the story, of course. And you can only get to know those things and get to face those challenges by doing, not by necessarily nitpicking and perfectly planning out ahead of time. I mean, there are architects and then there are gardeners when you're writing. And an architect will generally have an entire layout beforehand, but no architect, no matter how meticulous, is going to have every single thing that happens. Um, I mean, I'd be surprised. Maybe there is somebody out there that does that, but then that would take away all the mystery of actually writing the thing out beforehand or the experience of writing it. Right. Yeah. There's an amount of discovery going on. And, you know, take this podcast as an example. Like we didn't know what we were doing when we started. We read a few articles. We, you know, watched a few videos but we just kind of started doing it, and as we've been doing it, we've learned uh, ways to refine it, ways to optimize. In fact, we've got a, um, a short video we made. It's like 45 minutes where we're sharing with another person who's about to start a podcast uh, what we do, the method we do. And, you know, we, we recognize the Pareto um, uh, ratio where... We're happy with doing 20% of the work for 80% of the results right now. So as long as you can hear us and, and you enjoy our content, uh, we're happy with that. We could push uh, additional amount of effort to get the quality improved slightly, but for us, it's not really worth it. And so if you're interested in that kind of a thing, um, we'll make that video available to people who uh, maybe opt into our email or sign up for the website. We'll make that sort of a bonus that we can offer out to people. So it'll be uh, podcasting made simple in the actual anarchy method. Boom. Good plug, Daniel. I figure we better throw it out there at some point since we're talking about not waiting until something's perfect. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, the first scene is um, Billy Crystal writing. And we find out that he is an actually uh, a writing teacher. And uh, let's see, what is the next thing you wanted to talk about, Dan? Well, let's talk about why he's experiencing this writer's block. Um, because mm. I think the movie, the premise is that he's experiencing this block because he's so upset. Right. So fixated on what happened with his ex-wife. So why don't you talk about that a little bit? Right. So we don't get... The first thing we learn is he turns on Oprah in the middle of his his writer block, and she's interviewing his ex-wife, and she's being interviewed for having written a book. And Billy Crystal's immediate response is just to start screaming at the television because, according to him, she stole his book. Now, he never gets into detail about what that actually means, like actually physically, like – did she steal a manuscript? Did she physically steal a manuscript and just slap her name on it? Did she live with 
him as he was writing the book and maybe she was helping him with the story and talking it over and then she went and wrote her own story that's almost identical. We don't know. We don't actually find that out, but we do know that Billy Crystal is super angry and it is seems to be playing into his writer's block. So whether he's afraid of somebody else coming along and stealing it, who knows? We also get a scene later on where he's talking to his agent who is firing him, which I've never heard of. It. I guess yeah, I guess agents do fire their, the people they're hiring them if they're not producing anything. But uh, he actually fires him because of lack of production, because he hasn't written a thing in like years. Even though he's been given assignments, he's always had some excuse to not compromise his art. And so Billy Crystal thinks, you know, he's like an, an artist who happens to write, whereas he complains that other people see him as a writer and not as an artist. But that's not the main complaint. Main complaint seems to be that his wife stole his book and he's still super angry about it and uh, he wishes she were dead. Now, does that, I mean, it, I think if you, as much as I don't believe in intellectual property, once an idea is out there, it's, you can't say it's yours anymore. Um, if you were to just slap your name on somebody else's story that you they wrote, um, that is fraud. That is you claiming to have written a thing which you did not do. Um, if you were to buy, say, buy a book and then resell that book, not claiming any kind of ownership, you're just a bookstore, and that's perfectly fine. Yeah, I got the impression that she took the literal typed out manuscript and just put her name on it. And then she was on Oprah and they were talking about how, you know, it's your first time out. How are you such a developed writer? And um, I, it had something to do with like women empowerment, you know, like, well, I lived it. So, you know, it, it's my story and um, I'm just sharing it for all the women out there or something like that. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's not, it's interesting for us to talk about IP and writing and that sort of thing, but for the story, all you need to know is that he's super angry at his wife and he, he mentions multiple times that he wishes she were dead. And, and that she's a slut. <laughs> right. And that's like the impetus of the whole story because he has a student that overhears all this and then has a series of conversations where Danny DeVito's character just takes what what's said and kind of runs with it and goes off into his own head. And I think I think the most interesting character in this movie is definitely Dan DeVito's character, Owen, who is this kind of like simple-minded, not necessarily simple-minded, but just kind of childlike man-child person who has some serious, I don't know, lack of interpersonal communication skills and like really awareness of other people, almost like he's like kind of autistic or... You know how people have trouble deciphering um, other people's emotions where, you know, someone will, will, they're making an angry face and you don't know what that means. And so Billy Crystal is multiple times throughout the movie is giving Owen basically this, the brush off or like, hey, I need my personal space. And Owen is basically a stalker where he's sleeping outside his house and creeping up on him when he's out on a date and 
all kinds of inappropriate behavior. And Billy Crystal tells him such, but it doesn't seem to get through Owen's mind that this is inappropriate. Yeah, it's like uh, Danny DeVito's character, Owen, has no concept of a personal bubble. He doesn't respect the bubble. And he doesn't read emotions, like you were saying. And so I think some of it has to do with um, how they portray his mother, right? Because he's still living with his mother, and she's very abusive towards him. And he fantasizes about killing her in, in many ways. And in fact, he... Uh, in an early scene, he attempts to do so by putting lye in her Pepsi. Um, and it sort of has some, like, fantasy cutaways to where she actually drinks the lye and starts, you know, reacting to the poison. But then it cuts back to, you know, present time, and he slaps the cup out of her hand because he's like, oh, I can't actually go through with it. But there's many instances throughout the film where he visualizes himself actually killing her because of how terrible she is to him. Indeed, he does. And he's, and the, his, I kind of wish his story was a little bit more developed in his transformation because he, the entire movie, he wants her dead, wants her dead, wants her dead, wants her dead until the point at which the plot needed him to change his mind. And it didn't even really need him to change his mind. Um, maybe just as like, decide that he's not such a bad guy. But it just seems like a sudden convenient change at the end for him to all of a sudden not want her dead because there are multiple times, or at least one that I can remember, where he leaves and expects her to be dead when he comes back. And in that case, there would have been no opportunity for him to realize that, oh, I guess I really don't want her dead. But when he's actually confronted with it in person, at the end of the movie, he's like, oh, I guess I don't. But why? Just him finally coming to realize the fact that he never really wanted her dead? I don't know. There wasn't, there wasn't a whole lot of development in that, like, emotionally. But, you know, it's a comedy. You're not going to get a whole lot of serious like, emotional development out of a character, I guess, too much. But I, I would have appreciated a little bit to kind of get us as uh, maybe a couple lines, like, oh, I guess maybe... Maybe he could have gone back to like his childhood or because we learned that he loved his dad a whole lot. And maybe he maybe he realized that, oh, there was some reason why his dad really loved his mom. And maybe he secretly does love her, too. And that's why he doesn't want her to die. But we don't get any of that. We just get all of a sudden, for some reason, he doesn't want her dead anymore. So. Yeah, and I think because it was a comedy, it was kind of shallow on that on that end of the emotional connection, like you're saying. But uh Let's talk a little bit about um, the miscommunication. So he has his mother that he wishes was dead, and he's taken the class from the Billy Crystal character who has had some outbursts, uh, public outbursts, saying that he, wants, he wishes his slut wife were dead. And so he's taken this class, and he's writing a two- or three-page murder mystery and handing it in, and he doesn't seem to understand like how a plot works or how to how a mystery works. So one of the funny lines was uh, Billy Crystal says, "I didn't like it." And he's like, "Well, why didn't you like it?" So it's three pages, and there's only two characters, and one of them's dead by page two. And it's a murder mystery. <laughs> so then, yeah. so then uh, he starts giving him 
advice on how to, to develop a story, right? How to develop some of that mystery. And one of the things that you do is you remove the motive from the story or you, you make it so that the, the character who's committing the murder doesn't appear to have a reason. It's a, it's a way to like kind of obscure um, what's going on so you're not really sure who did it. And he suggests to the Danny DeVito character that, hey, you should go watch some Hitchcock films because he's really great at developing uh, these kinds of things, right? And so then Danny DeVito goes and watches the movie and he watches Strangers on the Train. And um, he sees this uh, movie and there's two characters who both want to kill someone, but they realize that they could commit each other's murder and uh, thereby establish alibis for themselves. And even though they would have had um, a motive that is easily you know, discovered for killing their own person, but no motive for killing the other person, they think it's like the perfect crime. And so DeVito takes this um, advice on how to develop his writing as uh, a miscommunicated message of, I hate my wife and I want her dead. You hate your mom, you want her dead. Let's swap murders, crisscross. Right. He takes it as a wink, wink, go see this movie, wink, wink, and maybe you'll get an idea about what I want you to do, wink, wink. And upon watching the movie, any sane, rational person would go, well, he just recommended a movie, a, a director to go watch to learn about how to write a better story. But DeVito's character is such a crazy person, and he's so obsessed with killing his mother that maybe he's looking, grasping at straws, looking for any reason to maybe justify it or find a way to do it or whatever, that he goes and he watches it and he interprets that and he concocts in his own head this whole agreement that doesn't exist because right after that movie, he takes off and goes after and tries to kill his wife through no other communication. No like, hey, I watched this movie. Did you... uh well, yeah, what movie did you watch? Oh, I watched Strangers on a Train. You know, like you recommended. Well, it's like, no, I didn't recommend to watch Strangers on a Train. I recommended you watch some Mount Hitchcock movie, but that's one of them, so sure. And he's like, yeah, and uh, remember in that movie, there's like this crisscross where the guy kills, uh, you know, the guy that other person wants dead and vice versa. And what do you think about that? There was none of that. He just goes off and does it. Like a right, total yeah. crazy person. Because there's like 50 Hitchcock movies, right? So it could have been any. <laughs> so, I mean, if, if he had seen the birds, would he have been like, oh, I'm going to get like a shit ton of parrots and, you know, put them That's loose right. in the house. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, there's any or, number or of uh, Hitchcock movies. So, yeah, who knows? Uh, it's a funny premise for a comedy, though, so... I mean, we're trying to analyze a comedy, but that's what we're going to do, folks. We're analyzing a comedy for its uh, realism, which is uh, epi- uh failure, but who cares? That's what we're doing. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the mother dynamic because, I mean, I think he has good reason for not wanting to be around her, right? I mean, wanting her dead's one thing, uh, but he still chose to live with her. But, I mean, she was, like, beating him and calling him a clumsy poop and uh, saying, move it, lard ass, and, you know, turn off the TV or get me my Pepsi in a very, you know, obviously rude way. Uh, She's a very abrasive person. So, you know, happy Mother's Day, everyone. But it's it's well established that she is not a likable character 
in this movie. And so you can sort of right. sympathize with the Owen character, the Danny DeVito character, uh, in that, you know, she's clearly abusing him. She's, she's hitting him physically and verbally abusing him. And I think that that is, um, it, it's, there's obviously a better way to solve his problem, you know, move out. Um, but. Right. And, and movies are made about the 1%, right? I mean, 99% of the time, that, that's the story. Dan DeVito gets a job, moves out. But you know, that's not an interesting movie. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, the most reasonable thing would just be to motivate him. Like, hey, I don't like being around this person. How do I not be around this person anymore? And we're not giving, we're not given a reason as to why he is unable to get a job and get his own place or anything like that. Um, outside of maybe some sort of bizarre emotional, um, connection or relationship where he is, you know, in that kind of abusive, battered syndrome thing that I don't right, really then, know enough about to really talk about. So, and she has him doing things like clipping her toenails or like getting the uh, earwax out of her ear, <laughs> like all this gross stuff. And he's he's going back to those fantasies about killing her, like uh, when he's getting the earwax out of her ear which I actually had to do that personally a couple of weeks ago. I couldn't hear out of one ear. Um, but there's this big, giant pair of scissors right next to the sink, and he envisions stabbing her through the head. And, of course, they show uh, the result of that in a um, you know one of those like cutaways. And she's like, ah, and there's you know, scissors through her head. And uh, my wife cuts hair, and every time she cuts my hair, I feel like, She's either going to be upset with me and stab me through the head or accidentally, like, cut my ear or something. So, you know, another personal tidbit. <laughs> so you're constantly fearing for your life around your wife. That's good, Daniel. That's a healthy relationship. Oh, totally healthy. Totally healthy. No, I just think that sometimes she's um, so confident in her ability, and I have uh, abnormally large ears, that she'll accidentally snip, like just just with the end of this of the shears, just just snip a little bit of the skin, and I feel like that would um, be rather painful. Your wife was a professional who cut hair, fully licensed by the state, I might add. So you know she's good. She's got to be Guaranteed. good, right? <laughs> Guaranteed. The state's got their stamp of approval, and they don't make mistakes, right? <laughs> Never. That's right. <laughs> All right, so we've talked about the mother a little bit. Uh, before we move on too much further, I do want to bring it back to the class that Billy Crystal teaches because there are some other characters in there that are pretty funny. There's one guy who's writing a, a I guess it's a coffee table book, A uh, Hundred Women I'd Like to Boink. Now, wait a minute. You just you just censored yourself or you just changed it. Oh, I, I thought it said I'd like to boink. What did it say? Okay, so... When I first watched it, I just heard him say pork. Oh, okay. Pork. And pork, whatever. And well, yeah. Okay. No, there's more to the story. So then, um, I was talking to my neighbors and changed subject, whatever. I, so I had to rewind it for some other reason. And I rewatched that scene just by happenstance. And I was watching Billy Crystal's lips and he specifically says fuck but they dubbed over him just that one word pork 
And I just thought that was just a weird thing to do. Like you, you're the best take that you liked. Billy Crystal actually said fuck. And then you had him redo it because this is like a PG-13 movie and you can't say fuck anymore or back in these days or whatever. Oh, yeah, 1987, yep. PG-13, that probably was what they had to do to get that rating. Right. So that's all. Okay. Well, that that would have made it much funnier, (laughs) obviously. A hundred girls I'd like to fuck. And he starts listing, you know, celebrities of the day. And he's kind of this creepy, you know, middle-aged dude, the, the student. And uh, so he lists like three or four celebrities, and then he says, that girl in the taco commercials. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then later on. (laughs) Oh, go ahead. No, I like the fact that um, when there's the discussion about the book, one of the guys is like, I think it was like the old man. He's like, you know, I like that title. (laughs) And he's like defending it against somebody else who was like, that's a weird title or not an appropriate title. He's like, no, I think it's a good title. A hundred women I'd like to fuck. That's a good coffee table book title. Yeah, and then it plays a little bit later when um, the Billy Crystal character is having a a discussion with his now girlfriend or girl he's trying to date. And his classmates are at the next table, or his his class is at the next table. And they go, uh, the the guy writing this book says, oh, and what's your name? (laughs) He's like, don't even think about it. Yeah. Going to add you as a chapter. Oh, here it is. Here it is. Uh, I got the quote right here. 100 girls I'd like to fuck. Hmm. Chapter one, Kathleen Turner. Chapter two, Sybil Shepard. Chapter three, Suzanne Plachette. Chapter four, the girl in the taco commercial. Chapter five, the woman in 4B. Chapter six, the oriental Laker girl. Chapter seven. <laughs> it just I don't know if you remember the oriental Laker girl, but I do. She was a liquor girl for a long time, and yeah, she was super hot. Yeah, I don't know if you could say this uh, this line in a in a movie produced today. It'd be kind of, I think it'd be triggering for some people. Yes, um, actually, I was watching uh, rewatching Dirty Harry. I don't know when that movie came out, seventies, early seventies. But there is some definitely some language in that movie. You go, wow, <laughs> it was just a different time. <laughs> It's uh, it's good. I'm not going to repeat it. Watch it for yourself. But yeah, uh, Dirty Harry, Hall- Harry Callahan is played off as this like hardcore racist, and so they're just listing off every word he uses. Uh, it's good. Yeah, I think it would be fun to do a Dirty Harry just so we could do a Clint Eastwood and talk about him. I think he's an interesting guy. Definitely. Yeah, he's had an interesting life. All right, so moving back to the plot. Um, so Danny DeVito's character, having seen strangers on a train, thinks that the Billy Crystal character is saying, okay, let's swap murders and we'll establish alibis. And so we'll both be able to get away with it. And this is all in Owen's head, right? He's crazy. So he flies right. down to Hawaii where Billy Crystal's ex-wife is living and, you know, she's got this posh, you know, waterfront estate because of uh, all the success from the book that she stole from Billy Crystal. And he uh, attempts to murder her in her house. He breaks into the house and he, he does this trope thing of putting on these like murder gloves. And you were describing it to me earlier. So why don't you take over? Yeah. He just does this really ridiculous zombie classic movie murder pose where he sticks his hands out with his big dumb gloves on and he like 
puts his hands in this formation like he's going to choke somebody, like sticking straight out like a zombie. And he's just slowly, like the super slowliest slow walk ever. And I like how in the movie, he, they like didn't feel the need to take away his sound. Like, so they got a microphone hanging, you know, above the scene when they're shooting it. And Billy and Dan DeVito is like in all these noises, right? I mean, he's like shuffling along, along on the ground and pushing the coffee table a little bit and moving the ta- telephone and breathing and all this stuff. And you can hear it in the movie. So, you know, he's not like Mr. Ninja guy. And the fact that she doesn't overhear him being there is strictly because in the script, she's not supposed to overhear what he's, that he's there, but it's painfully obvious that he's like the most inept murderer crook guy of all time. And it's just funny. Played it up for comedic value, I guess. Yeah, you know what? Another thing I wanted to, to bring up is that the whole um, crisscross, the swapping of murders, um, and, and Billy Crystal telling him, you know, you eliminate the motive, and that draws out the, um, the, the mystery of the, of the movie or of a right. story that you're writing. Uh, right. They almost treat the act of getting caught or the, or the consequence of getting caught as like almost the only reason you wouldn't just murder somebody. Yes, they absolutely, it's like, yeah, it's the whole getting caught thing that the only reason why you wouldn't do it. Not because it's wrong to murder somebody. Yeah, very utilitarian. Right, yeah, because Billy Crystal's like, I wouldn't do it because I've got so much motive. Because everybody knows I hate her, so I could never do it. Yeah, he's going around, he keeps like saying, hate and murder and slut, I I see nothing but hate and death. (laughs) And then uh, later on, uh, he says, uh, I'm majoring in motive. <laughs> right. Because, yeah, he's got so much of it, so much reason to murder her. And he's made it no secret that he could never do it because, yeah, the cops would just come pick him up right away. And so that's what happens when, when Danny DeVito calls him and is like, yeah, your wife's dead. And then he sees on the news that she's missing. He's like, well, holy shit, I got to get out of here. Because the cops will be on to me right away. Right, yeah. So uh, back to the house where he's about to, to kill her, there's the gardener who shows up and, and starts doing her on the couch. And so he can't do it there. And there's that scene where the making phone rings. Making barking noises, by the way. Yeah, making barking noises like a chihuahua. She, I think she even says, you're my little chihuahua. But then the phone rings and she can't quite reach the phone. So Danny DeVito, hiding behind the couch, slides the phone closer so that she can reach it, which is kind of fun. It was. And then, <laughs> and then he makes a ham sandwich uh, in her house. Yeah. <laughs> On the, like, the, the veranda or whatever, and in full view of the, the guy like mowing the lawn afterwards, and she drives away, could have turned and looked and saw. Apparently she doesn't care to shut the doors or lock up when she leaves. Yeah. It's all silliness. Now, I, I do want to plug in something here. Uh, I've got a, like a four or five minute clip of Murray Rothbard talking about all the uh, capital and investment and uh, the time structure, like 10 or 20 years you have to go back to have all the components to satisfy someone's desire for a ham sandwich. And so I'll just plug that in here just because I can, and it's a ham sandwich, and it's funny, and here's some Murray Rothbard. Everything else which is not 
labor or natural resources called capital goods. Because capital consists of everything used in production, which is not land or labor. Could be the net, fishing net to use for fishing, pole if you're to fish, bow and arrow to hunt, anything like that. Anything right now it can be roads, trucks, tires on a truck. All these things are factories, of course, goods and process. All these things are part of capital until you get to the consumer. For example, if you just ate a ham sandwich with Michelangelo, take that, one of my favorite examples. The end process of millions of people engaged in production. By the way, what is production? Production is a transformation, the use of labor, working on natural resources to transform into capital, different types of capital, but finally you wind up with consumer goods. So production is this whole process of starting with land and labor and winding up with consumer goods, so different degrees of capital. So, for example, let's take a ham sandwich in Michelangelo. You have an enormous amount of cooperating factors in there. It's a whole production tree or a structure of production, starting with a farmer and miner and so forth, going for about 30 years at least to you get to the ham sandwich. Okay, what do you got? You got different ingredients going into it. To produce the ham sandwich, to sell it to the consumer, you got to have the ham, of course. You have to have the bread. You have cheese, butter, yeah, tomato. <laughs> Okay, all these things got to be brought together on a retail level, and you have to have the workers and aprons and counters, okay? Yeah, you got to have counters and refrigerator units, you know, all that sort of stuff. And chairs, somebody's got to produce the chair so you can sit on it. All these things have to be produced. They all have to be combined to get to the one ham sandwich. They have to be produced for many years. The ham is sold by a wholesaler, and they get it from a jobber, which is like Eastern Seaboard. And they get it from Chicago, you got the meat packer, the meat packer, the you know, package the meat and have the slaughterhouses, slaughterhouse gets it from the farmer, raises the pigs, they have to have stockyards, they have to have trucks in every step of the way, and gasoline for the trucks and tires. I mean, on and on and on. This is only for the ham. The pigs have to eat, and they usually eat corn. The corn has to be grown, and on and on and on. The machinery every step of the way, and this is, and, and all this, I say, is just from one unit. And it takes 30 years, it involves millions of people for one lousy ham sandwich. That's incredible. And every country in the world probably is involved in this. People growing ebony for pencils in Africa and so forth and so on, which is then, because you have to have paper, you have to have pencils to record all this stuff and figure out what's going on. At least, so every step of the way, you have to have land, at least to grow on, you have to have different kinds of capital, and you have to have labor. The interesting thing is it works. At every step of the way, one of the amazing things about the market, the free market economy, is it all works. For me to get a ham sandwich right today, you don't have to have some world planning board Eight guys on the plan board sitting around 30 years ago. I said, let's see, on January 28, 1986, we have to get a raw ham sandwich. Therefore, you got to go raise the pigs. You over there go raise the corn and so forth. Got to get raw fodder ham sandwich. Nobody does that. There's no world planning board trying to figure this out. If there were, we'd all be in big trouble. And yet it all works at every step of the way. All these things happen at every step of the way with no shortages and no surpluses. Everything fits together like a lattice work structure. The market economy is like a lattice work, like a, like a lace thing. It all fits in. How come it all fits in? What? There's no planning board that fits it all in. The market itself does it. And really what microeconomics is is to study how the thing works and what happens when the government intervenes in the process and screws everything up. The big factor here, which is true both in Crusoe and for us, the big factor is this. We contrast the world with what I call the Garden of Eden model. Some people believe mankind used to be in the Garden of Eden and was then kicked out for various transgressions. Whether it's true or not, it's an interesting model to look at. In the Garden of Eden, everybody satisfies his or her wants in unlimited fashion. No work, no nothing. Snap your fingers and Pepsi is trickling down your throat. Nobody has to work at it, nobody has to produce it. 
Why is that? Because there's no scarcity. If there's no scarcity, you don't need private property, you don't need labor, you don't have to work. Unfortunately, we were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, if they ever existed. And so in the world as it exists, uh, in human history, there's tremendous scarcity. You don't have unlimited abundance of all factors of production, all goods. The Garden of Eden model is unlimited abundance of all desire for goods. If somebody wants to hear a symphony, they snap their fingers and get it right, right there. We haven't got that. We have to have somebody working to produce it. And so what we have the ever-present fact of scarcity. Scarcity meaning scarcity of resources relative to the goals that we have and we've got to try to accomplish. Scarcity of resources. Scarcity, well, we'll see in a minute what the resources are. Obviously, it's scarcity of land, labor, and capital. Scarcity in the sense that we'd like to have more of it. If we had more of it, we could produce more, consume more. We could have higher standards of living. If we had no scarcity, if everything was super abundant, we wouldn't have to work. We wouldn't have to worry about anything. We'd just have seed trickling down our throat, just like that, or whatever equivalent. Well, what happens is the caveman has everything is extremely scarce. They're in bad shape. Crusoe is in bad shape. Everything is very scarce. He's going to die tomorrow. He doesn't get food immediately. The progress of the human race, the progress of civilization, is essentially the alleviating of scarcity. Scarcity is still there, just with a lot less of it. A lot further from the brink than Crusoe was or the caveman was. A higher living stance. So the, the progress of the human race is essentially the progressive diminution or alleviation of scarcity. Scarcity is still there, but just a lot less of it. All right, thanks, Murray. Telling us about the, the ham sandwich. We'll move on with our movie here. Attaboy, Murray. Yeah, so uh, the the ex-wife leaves, and she goes down to the port to um, get on a boat that's an inter-island ferry to go to a uh, a book signing that she's due to go to. And Danny DeVito gets on the same boat with her and tries to engage with her, right, to, to like get close enough to, like, kill her, I guess. And she right. totally blows him off. She's like, he, he start, starts talking, and she just ignores him completely and then walks away. And she goes up on the uh, deck of the boat, and she's leaning over the edge, uh, Titanic style, right? Like um, Leo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet. And one of her flashy earrings falls out. And they actually made mention of this earring a couple of times. Like, she's wearing it on the Oprah uh, show. And I think it's, uh, what's the guy's name? Brent, uh, Wynton Marsalis or Bradford Marsalis says, oh, that... <laughs> Check out those earrings. That, that's your money right there. <laughs> Is that who anyway, that, that, that side character was? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, All right. Let me see if I've, if he's listening here. That's fine. Here. Yeah, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Anyway, one of the earrings falls out while she's on the deck of the boat, and um, the, the Vito character was like, gonna just push her over. But then the earring falls out, and she starts leaning over the the railing herself and then he's approaching her with the murder gloves doing the zombie walk and then it cuts away to him calling billy crystal and saying aloha uh, your wife's dead yeah i don't want to say that uh, i i did something wrong but i just killed your wife or something like that <laughs> this is good i shouldn't say it over the phone but i just killed your wife <laughs> And then I think uh, Billy Crystal hangs up on him, and uh, DeVito's like, oh, okay, good, that's smart, okay. And then, like, five seconds later, he calls him again from another phone, and then he says something else, and then he hangs up, calls again from another phone, like, five, ten seconds later, but he's on some other part of the island, like he's teleporting all across Hawaii. And you were saying earlier, um, like, these phones are in just random weird places that a phone would never be. Yeah, they were just finding funny backdrops for having 
pay phones. It was pretty good. I mean, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but there was one like a, in a field with like a horse right behind him. There was just all kinds of silly, silly stuff. It was just all gag type stuff. It was funny. I appreciate a good movie gag. Yeah, so then when uh, Billy Crystal hears on the radio that, that uh, she's missing and presumed dead and that foul play is suspected, then he all of a sudden um, feels like he's going to be the prime suspect because the night before he had been so upset about something regarding his book that uh, he went down to the beach and was just – he got drunk and no one saw him there. So he had no alibi. Right, so that's the first thing he does is he goes and goes over to his neighbor and is like, I was with you yesterday, right? We were hanging out, trying to establish an alibi. But then the girl that his neighbor was with, like, immediately started poking holes in his alibi. It's like, well, no, you still could have caught the whatever flight and made it to Hawaii and killed her plenty of time and got back here, no problem. So he kind of just goes on the lam a bit. Yeah, and she was like the head stewardess or whatever, so she knew all the schedules and all of this stuff. And uh, that guy is played by Branford Marsalis. Um, but uh, what I found interesting about this was, I, I don't know if 1987 was like just a totally different time, but wouldn't wouldn't it be pretty easy to establish that you were not on an airplane? Yeah, wouldn't there be like a like a passenger record list or I don't know, any number of things that they would have to, you know, provide evidence that you were actually there. You would need some sort of physical evidence, like a passenger manifest, or that you were even on the boat, or that anybody even saw you on the boat, or some kind of physical evidence at the scene. I mean, just having a motive isn't enough to convict a guy of a murder. Lots of people have motives when somebody is murdered. Um, but you usually go with the guy with the motive and the physical evidence and the eyewitness testimony and all kinds of stuff. But yeah, then no alibi Crystal and the it. opportunity. Right, all the stuff. you got to have all, you got to have the whole matzo ball. You can't just have the, the motive because, you know, any number of people hate assholes. Um, so I don't know really, I mean, for the benefit of the movie, he starts freaking out about it. But I don't think, um, in reality, he would have been bothered too much. I know I wouldn't. If, yeah. Even though I had made public statements about wanting someone dead, that's not enough to convict you. Um, wanting someone dead is a thought crime. It's not actual crime. As much as, you know, some people would like that to be a crime, it's not. And uh, it's not enough to cause me to be in a tizzy. Like, if someone died that I wanted dead... I wouldn't be like, oh, no, I better establish a motive. I better establish an alibi for when that person was killed. I would have been like, oh, all right. Good day to be me, I guess, today. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Not that I necessarily want a whole lot of people dead, but there are some politicians that I wouldn't cry about if they fell over dead tomorrow. All kinds of people that are making the world a worse place that uh, I wouldn't shed too many tears. Not that I'm super happy when us crazy humans that are just trying to make sense of this life go around and die tragically. But, you know, when you spend your whole life making other people's lives worse, you don't endear me to your situation. Sorry. Right. And, of course, the people who get um, 
villainized are the people who are actually providing value, like the the entrepreneurs who have been successful. You know, they're actually creating something that people desire at better quality, lower prices. Like people actually have a higher li- standard of living as a result of their work. They're the ones who are demonized and made to look as if they're just rich, greedy assholes. Right. Crisscross. Yeah. Crisscross. Crisscross. It's a nice little mind trick. It's a Jedi mind trick or a Sith mind trick where government can do no wrong or even if they do wrong constantly, it's it's not the people's fault. It's not the actor's fault of doing who are doing it all the time. Somehow, some way, they avoid the Teflon Teflon villains, the Teflon Dons. All right, so back to the movie. So now Larry hears about this uh, murder on the radio, and because he doesn't have a good alibi and this stewardess says, well, technically you could have made it all the way down there and back in time, um, he starts acting even more suspicious. Like he starts telling people, like, I've got motive, and, and there's no alibi, and he, he tells his girlfriend and he tells uh, the uh, Bradford Marcellus character, and then the the police start in investigating these people, start talking to them, interviewing them. And uh, because he's told them all of these things, it starts to sound very, very suspicious. And so then he, in essence, does actually become a prime suspect. And so when Owen, um, the DeVito character, wants to meet up with him because he's like, all right, I've done I've done my murder for you. Now you owe me the murder for me. And uh, he he tries to convince Billy Crystal that he needs to go through with it. Right. And he offers up as evidence, you know, first of all, the fact that she's disappeared, but also he, he hands him the diamond ring that he knew that Billy Crystal knew and recognized. So if I was Billy Crystal at that point, I'd be pretty convinced that he in fact had murdered her. Um, even if he is some little creepy weirdo, I mean, I guess creepy weirdos are, you know, could be serial killers or could be killers. So, um, I wouldn't have taken it as a, as a reason to go murder his mother though. And like you said, that there's a scene where they're driving in a car and Billy Crystal's like, Hey, you need to confess to this murder because you just murdered this person and we don't have a contract. What are you talking about? We don't have any kind of agreement. And then, and then Danny DeVito's like, yeah, okay, I'm a bad person. I'll, I'll confess. And then the next scene is him not confessing. Cows. Okay. Yeah, I'm a bad person. Cows! And, uh, yeah, don't really know why that didn't get put in there or wasn't in the movie at all. Because, yeah, then Billy Crystal just kind of gives up on that. And then there's, like, at his house, and Danny DeVito's, like, introducing him to his mother, and he's understanding that, yes, this is a not a nice lady, and but he's still saying, hey, I'm not going to murder her just because she's not nice. <laughs> There's a lot of not nice people in the world. If that was a a qualification for being murdered, uh. yeah. But I mean, he does see how terrible she is, and and they do actually have a a rather touching moment where Danny DeVito shares his coin collection with Larry, with the uh, Billy Crystal guy. You want to talk about that a little bit? It, it kind of got me at the heartstrings. Did it? Yeah, it was nice. Um, you get you really that one scene really. And I kind of wish that there had been more, as I said earlier, to explain why all of a sudden he had a big change of heart about his mother. But 
in the movie, it's kind of pun- funny because Danny is like, hey, I want to show you my coin collection. And Billy Crystal's like, nah, I don't care. I don't want to see it. And he's like, yeah, come on. Let me show you. And he pulls out this box and he's like, look at this. Here's a quarter and a nickel and then a nickel and a penny and a dime. And Billy Crystal's like, yeah. And are these worth anything? He's like, yeah. Or no, no. He says, no. And he's like, well, there's a, usually a reason why people collect coins. And he's like, well, yeah. And we find out that each each coin was change given to him for a time he spent with his father. And he treasures them as memories um, of good times with spent with someone he loved. And, yeah, that was very well done. Um, it was very poignant and um, almost kind of out of place in this kind of wacky screwball comedy. But it was good. I appreciated that it was in there, that we got some kind of, you know, serious emotional connection to um, to one of the characters. Um, it would have been nice if that had, if there was some of that also for his mother, so we could have explained that change, but oh well. Yeah, I think part of it was to make the DeVito character, I mean, there's kind of a fine line of him being creepy, weird stalker, murder guy, but then also likable. And I think you have to have him be likable throughout the film, and, and he, especially by the end of the film, right? Yeah, and you get through that. I mean, the audience gets that from when he makes you laugh and when he makes you feel. And if you can identify with him, then, yeah, absolutely. You can uh, get on board with him character, and you can like him a little bit, even though he goes spends the, almost the entire movie wanting to kill somebody and maybe killing somebody as far as you know. Um, Spoilers! Cows! Oh, yeah, I did. Cows! Yeah, so I don't know. Have we mentioned that? We've been talking for so long. I don't remember what we said and what we haven't said. But yeah, he didn't actually, you know, push her over. She just slipped and fell, and she got picked up by a fisherman who she's going to marry now. And Danny DeVito just ends up, you know, picking up that earring and then playing it off like he had murdered her so that um, Billy Crystal would, in fact, murder his mother. So on top of wanting and almost killing somebody, then he's just like a total fraud. And like saying, hey, I did this thing for you when I didn't, in fact, do this thing for you that you didn't even want me to do. Then that means why you should do this thing for me. I mean, is this the most crazy person ever that he would think that that Billy Crystal owed him something? (laughs) Here's this thing that I didn't do that you didn't even want me to do. And that's reason why you need to go do a thing for me, like murder somebody for me. It's just silliness. Yeah, it is bizarre, though. You know, he was about to push her, and then she falls off on her own. And so as far as he knows, the same result occurred, right? Whether he pushed her or not. She still fell off, and he presumed that she was dead. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, a court probably would have found him guilty had she not been rescued by that fisherman. I mean, he had the intent. He had the motive. He had the, well, not necessarily the motive, but, you know, apparently... And the opportunity. I mean, he was right behind her with the, the murder gloves on in his zombie stance. Right. Right. In the zombie stance and the murder gloves on. And he kind of, you know, bystander watching that. And he's just like just about to do it. And she slips and falls off anyway. Um, would probably say, yeah, he was about to kill her. Yeah. So let's bring it back to uh, right after the coin scene. I guess that's where Billy Crystal really um, connects with Danny DeVito. And then the next time that Mama is mean to him, that's when Billy Crystal 
finally relents and agrees that, okay, fine, I'll do it. And DeVito uh, comes up with this alibi that he's going to go out and be bowling. And so he puts a string in the door uh, when he leaves and he says, okay, you know, if, if he does the murder and then leaves, the string will fall out. So when I come back to the house, I'll know it's been done. And the police are there when he arrives back at home. And at first, he's very reluctant to have them come in. They wanted to ask him some questions because uh, the Billy Crystal character is a suspect, and they're talking to all of his um, his class members to um, you know find out if they know any information. They all say the same thing, like, "Oh yeah, he said that he he wanted her dead and that she was a slut." Um, but when they interview Danny DeVito, he says, "Oh, he loved her. She was great." and all this stuff, you know, so he didn't line up with what, what the police were hearing otherwise. Um, but because he saw that the string was gone, he does let the police in and he figures that they're going to discover that his mama is dead and that he has this alibi. So there's no way he could have done it. Of course, I think there's another plot hole here. If she was dead, how would they know that she didn't die before he left? I don't know. I mean, I guess you can 1987, right? Maybe they could have done a time of death thing. Maybe. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think with time of death, I think it's a general, like, within a few hours. So I don't think you can nail it down, especially not then, to an exact time. I think they they guesstimate it to within a few hours. Right. But, of course, the Billy Crystal had not killed her. And this brings up one of your favorite lines, and I'll let you take that. That's right. So Danny DeVito... He's got these cops in his kitchen, and uh, he's got Billy Crystal hiding in the pantry. And the pantry is covered by this, like, curtain. And um, for some reason, I forget exactly why, but Danny DeVito is expecting his mother to be dead, right? So he, like, opens the door and finds that she's alive, and he's got cops standing right there. And he goes, he exclaims, Mom, you're alive! <laughs> and he realizes what he just said and he says to the cops he's like you know old people you gotta you gotta you gotta explain to them that they're still alive (laughs) you have to remind them they're still alive (laughs) this is good stuff good cover good cover um yeah then he was gonna either he kind of flip-flops on whether or not he's gonna sell out billy crystal because they're there you know looking for billy crystal and since he didn't kill his mom now he's like oh maybe i should sell him out maybe i shouldn't in the end, he doesn't, and the cops leave. But yeah, um, I don't know. Are there any issues about that that we should we need to talk about? I don't know. It was I was a little confused because he seemed to be going back and forth on whether he was going to have them discover Larry hiding in there or not. He's like, "Oh, can you get me the Darjeeling tea?" Or, "Oh, how about the Old English?" Or, <laughs> "Tell him where my mind's at." Uh, the English breakfast. And then he says, oh, wait, I found the tea right over here, so don't bother. And so, you know, Billy Crystal thinks he's safe. And then he says, oh, but I could use the sugar, and it's in the pantry. So I, I didn't understand what the back and forth on that was. Like, he's almost going to have him be discovered and then not, and then he teases him again with it. So it's kind of weird. Yeah, I took that as, like, him yeah, deciding, going back and forth in his own mind whether or not he was going to turn his friend in or not for just because they were looking at looking for him for, for know, the other murder. murder. Right. Right. Cause mama wasn't dead. Have, Cause mama wasn't dead. Um, yeah, I don't know. 
Did did we uh, say yet um, what his uh, the night was answers were like what he finally settled on? Um, what he started, started off with like hot and then humid, then moist, um, and then yeah, the mother comes along and says what sultry. Yeah, at the very end, and that just sets him off because he's like ah. That's it. It's like so like, good that <laughs> I have to kill her. So good. Yeah, now I can't use it because she said it, and I got to murder her because she outwrote me, and who knows what all that was about. But just tipped him over the edge, and so he was finally going to throw her from the train. Did did it? What were they? Why were they on that train? Did you did you notice that part? Yeah, so right, where were they going? Right after the um, the cops leave, they realize that um, Larry's a prime suspect, and and since he's not going to kill Mama. Uh, he wants to escape, and they were going to turn him in or something. And somehow, you know, magically through the power of the script and a plot hole, um, he's on a train to get down to Mexico to start his life over and escape. You know, he's on the lamb. He's a fugitive. And then Mama and uh, Danny DeVito are there with him. So it's like they were going to turn him in because she discovers um, from some broadcast that uh, – He's a prime suspect, and she goes, murder, murder is in our house. And then he escapes. Right. But then they're with him. So it was kind of weird. It's like all of a sudden, like, you expected something totally different. And it's not like a plot twist. It's more like a plot hole. Um, But they're on the train together, and, you know, he says the night was humid, the night was moist, and then she says the night was sultry, and that sets him off. And he decides he's going to kill her. And right after um, he leaves to to chase her down towards the end of the train, Danny DeVito has this change of heart and starts following them to prevent this from happening. Yes, he does. And yeah, there's there's some missing scenes in this movie. Um, I think when you enjoy a movie as much as I did that movie, you kind of forgive the weird plot holes and whatnot because you're just basically in it for the lulls or whatever you're getting out of it, the fun performances and the characters. And yeah, it's not a perfect movie. And yeah, these doesn't make sense for these characters to be in the scene together, but you want to see them in the scene together anyway. So you don't care. It's like, yeah, just throw them together. I just want to see them talk more to each other. Yeah. I think there might've been some stuff on the cutting room floor because I think when you're writing a story, you make sure that it all works, but they were probably trying to fit it under 90 minutes, and I don't know. Right. It seems like there were like two or three little gaps that shouldn't have been there, but I think that overall it was still entertaining. And so, you know, spoilers, everyone. At the end, even Billy Crystal decides not to kill her, and uh, there's this, like, she slips, and he prevents her from falling off the train, and then Danny DeVito and her bring her back uh, onto the train, you know, because she's about to get hit by something that they're passing by. And then um, she says, oh, you know, my baby boy, I love you. You know, I I don't mean to treat you bad. My baby Owen, my baby Owen. And then she looks at Billy Crystal and is like pissed at him and kicks him off the train and he falls off and breaks his leg. And the next scene we see him in a recovery room, uh, still railing about his wife because it's discovered she's still alive and she's going to marry the fisherman guy. And she sold the rights to the story for $1.5 million. So, like, even this terrible thing happens to her, and she still comes out smelling like a rose. And he's still pissed about it. But so does he immediately thereafter. 
Right, but but there's a scene, and it's very important. The roommate with him, uh, the old guy, is like, you keep hanging on to this anger and being upset about her, and that's the thing holding you back. And if you don't get over this, I'm leaving you too. <laughs> and this is like a hospital roommate, right? And it's the whole point of the movie, right? Like he's so upset with his wife that he can't write, and it's screwing up his other relationship, and he's – you know, teaching a course that he's not inspired by and all these events happen because he's holding on to all this anger about what happened to him. And, you know, rightfully so in some respects, right? Like she stole his book, divorced him, became really successful as a result of stealing his work. Um, but trashed him. Super trashed, trashed him. him. Talked about yeah. how he was like a prison husband and like a jailkeeper and her nightmare experience as a prisoner wife and all that business. Right, like on like Oprah, he's a, like he's a Morton Joe and she's a rape wife. Yeah, exactly. And he's like, um, "Excuse me, what did you say, Steve?" So yeah, I mean, he's justifiably <laughs> angry with her. Yeah, but uh, you know, the guy at the end is like, "Yeah, you, you got to let that go." And then once he realizes that, then he starts writing uh, his story about his interactions with Mama and Owen and all of this, and he is just about to wrap it up. And then uh, Danny DeVito's character comes back into his life like a year later. And I'll let you take this because you were describing it to me before, and I thought it was pretty fun. Oh, okay. So he's finishing up this book, the story about the whole experience, about the movie, essentially. And he's super happy with it, and it's just pouring right out of him, and he's almost done. And in walks Danny DeVito, and Danny DeVito is in town because he's got like a book signing. And he starts telling him what what his book was about, and it turns out that Dan DeVito wrote a book about the exact same thing. And he flies into a rage because here again, somebody has basically beat him to the punch about a story that either we either he straight out stole or whatever. Like he had another opportunity, and it's really going to work out for him. And here's he's been like betrayed, but you know he doesn't have he doesn't have like the rights. The, he doesn't like own what happened. He doesn't own the story rights to what happened. So it's essentially he's upset about being outcompeted, right? That somebody else came along and wrote a story from their perspective about the same event. It's almost as if you were writing a book about World War II and there's already a book about World War II. Oh no. Well, sorry, but that's, you know, the way life is. You can, uh, complain about it, or you can just write a better book and give people a reason to read your book as opposed to that other book, or in addition to that other book. And of course, it turns out that Danny DeVito... Well, he starts choking him out. He starts choking him out. He's like that angry, right? Oh yeah, he physically assaults him. He's like trying to murder him right then and there. And Owen, like the sweet little simpleton that he is, doesn't like defend himself, doesn't go like, hey, you're attacking me. He's just like <laughs> trying to explain what he did. He's like, yeah, I wrote a book about our experiences, and look, here it is, and here's a copy of it, and look, you can pull out this tab and look at the, the characters move. And and so all of a sudden, Billy Chris was like, oh, you wrote a kid's book, a little pop-up book. Oh, okay. Like 12 pages. <laughs> so this isn't going to compete for the same market share that my book is. When in reality, he should have been perfectly happy with competition because he should have been con- 
con, um, confident in his own writing abilities, especially compared to that of his students' writing abilities, who he was not confident in his ability to write at all. So you got some guy who's writing two-page murder mystery stories. The guy in the hat kills the other guy in the hat. (laughs) Right. How is that guy going to be competition for you? Uh, Okay. I mean, for the silliness of the plot, sure. But in the real world, no, that would not be a a serious threat to a competent novelist. But, you know, for for the lulls, okay. Um, so yeah, he, we find out that he's a, a pop-up book and everything's happy and his book goes on to be a big success and so does Owen's somewhat or whatever. We, we find them like on the beach at the end and everyone's living happily ever after. Yeah. Uh, Billy Crystal's got his girlfriend and they're out there just hanging out, swimming on the beach and that's the end. Oh, I, oh, we forgot to mention, um, his mom, Danny DeVito's mom, ends up dying of natural causes. He makes a point of saying that. So he doesn't murder her, um, and she was old and crotchety anyway, and um, so, you know, she's passed on, and then Owen writes this book, and he's successful, and Larry's successful, everyone's happy at the end. Right. Talks about, like, how long it's on the bestseller list and all that, so. Yeah, so Robert... ever after. Despite all the uh, plot holes, um, it sounds like you enjoyed the film, and we're glad that you watched it. I was cackling like a madman during some of the funnier bits that I was talking about. There were I must have left out loud eh, four or five times, which is plenty enough for my free dollars. We watched it for free on Vudu, like we said, um, which was you know like a watch for free deal. Just watch a couple ads, and anybody could just download that app and. I watched maybe three 15 minute or 15 second ads that were completely innocuous and who cares? Um, it's pretty good service. So recommend that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we, we get, super. we get nothing out of recommending that by the way, everyone, like as far as I know, there's no affiliate program. So it's just something we use and as a service to you, we're letting you know about it because we think it's kind of awesome because not only can you see some free movies for very few ads, but you can also um, load movies you have on disc um, into the service for like $2 for an SD version or $5 for an HD version, or you can even scan UPC codes with the app and uh, put the movie into your, into your library and then you can share that library with up to five other people. So Robert and I, because we do this show, which is about movies from a Rothbardian and anarcho-capitalist perspective, this is perfect for us because now we can put movies in there and he can watch them and I can watch them and we both have access and it's great. And uh, I'm pretty happy with it so far. I'm glad that we discovered it. Absolutely. So, yeah, check it out. If you want to see some free movies, they don't have a lot of free movies, I don't think, it, but they rotate them in and out for various times and reasons and whatnot. And this just happened to work out for this, this episode, but we'll be using it more in the future. So yeah, if you got an old collection of DVDs that you want to, I mean, you want the digital, you can always make the digital copies yourself and put them on your own hard drive. But this is like, you know, more of like a cloud situation where you could share them with friends, you know, that are far away. Or if you just want some kind of digital library that you can access at any time that you don't necessarily, you know, want to leg around a, a hard drive full of movies or whatever. So Yeah, that's old yeah, that's stuff. old school, man. And then uh that is yesterday's tech. 
Yep. And then there's also movies that, uh, if you buy more current movies, they have a UV uh, designation, and that's called ultraviolet. And this Voodoo app supports that. So if you buy a movie, you get a little download code. Uh, you enter that into the app, and then that movie um, shows up in your library, and it's included in your purchase. Uh, the one caveat to that is that those codes expire um, relatively soon, like within a year or two of when um, the DVD gets produced. So if you're buying something that's, like, say, from 2013, 2014, you might buy it. It'll say UV on it, but um, the code will have expired. And so in that case, you just put the disk in your drive or you scan the UPC code, and then you can still get a, a digital version of it for a couple of bucks. Um, but if you if you buy a, a recent movie, then you just enter the code and it shows up. So good stuff. Good stuff. So what did you think of the movie, Daniel, wrapping this episode up? Uh, you know, I'm glad that this was sort of mistakenly categorized in the Mother's Day viewing on Voodoo. Um, because I was thinking we need to do a Mother's Day movie, and this one's about a mother, a terrible mother. And I have a decent mother. I like my mom. Hi, Mom. Happy Mother's Day. Uh, Robert, you can give a shout-out to your mom as well, if you wish. Shout-out, Mom. Happy Mother's Day. Shouting She's it greatest to mom. the outing it. Yeah, so th- this is our uh, Happy Mother's Day special for everyone. So it's throw Mama from the train. But, yeah, I thought it was a, it was a good movie. It holds up pretty well. I saw it probably back in the late 80s, you know, when it first came out. And for whatever reason, I thought that it would be, you know, once I saw it in the voodoo thing, I was like, oh, man, we got to do this. And then, you know, there was the opening scene with him being a writer, having the writer's block, and I thought, this is perfect. So I'm glad that we did this. I enjoyed it. There were some plot holes, but I feel like Danny DeVito and uh, Billy Crystal were really good in it. I think they probably ad-libbed a lot of their content, a lot of the things that they said, because uh, it seemed like you couldn't script some of it. It just sort of had a natural banter between them. And uh, for whatever reason, I thought that there was more um, on the train uh, in how I remembered it. Like for what I, I thought that in watching this again, I was expecting them to be on the train a lot longer than just like five minutes at the end. And they do like... Right. Um, you know, show trains throughout. Like there's a toy train that he's playing with on the deck, and then uh, when Billy Crystal's about to get it on with his girlfriend, that's on like this children's like ride that's a train. And there's the Hitchcock movie that Strangers on the Train. So there's a whole train motif going on throughout. Um, but yeah, I remembered them being on the train a lot longer than they actually were. Um, but in general, a uh, really fun movie. I'm glad that we watched it. And it's free on Voodoo right now, so people check it out if you want. Yeah, and um, for me, I've already said I enjoy it, so it's true. I enjoyed it. Um, the plot holes do you know, take away a little bit. And the, my biggest complaint is not even the plot holes. It's just the, um, the kind of hokey action scenes that they do. I mean, they kind of make fun of themselves at one point when um, they're driving down this hill in this car that conveniently all of a sudden has no brakes for no reason. And um, they're, they've shifted, obviously, super obviously, from an actual dry, a car driving down a hill to a car sitting stationary in a sound studio, on a sound stage, I mean, and having some, like, grips and some, like, best grips and boys and whatever and some stagehands, like, brushing tree branches past the windows. And they make it, they equip that it's like being in a Flintstones car wash. 
And so they kind of they, they kind of play it off, but uh, the the action scenes like that scene and the scene of um, the mother falling off the train part were kind of hokey, and I didn't I didn't think that the whole movie needed a whole lot of that kind of stuff. But other than that, the just the actual dialogue and just the scenes of the two actors together, and I thought that was all really good stuff. I, I really enjoyed Billy Crystal as the lead, and of course, being about a writer, hits me right where I want it to hit me. And uh, Dan DeVito, uh, I don't know what he's doing. I mean, I see he's doing all, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, which is really strong. I don't know if he's doing anything beyond that. Uh, uh, just supporting Bernie Sanders for president. Really? Yeah, unfortunately. That is a shame. Um, but, you know, I mean, he's in Hollywood, so most of those people are going to do that. Um, as an actor, though, you see, he's good. Uh, that, and then he was in, um, he played uh, the Penguin in Batman Returns, where he plays this super dark, evil, cackling, weirdo villain guy, but he does a really good job. Um, he's just an, uh, an overlooked talent, I think. Uh, he doesn't really get brought up as one of the good, great actors, but because he was, you know, mostly did comedy, but when he wants to, he could he could really bring it. Yeah, he's one of those guys that's been around so long. Uh, like we were saying in a pre-show discussion, Patrick Stewart. He seemed like an old guy 25 years ago when he was on The Next Generation, and Danny DeVito to me, you know, he was on Taxi, which was before we were even born, and he was already a bald dude and you know like an adult, right? And now here it is, like 40 years later. And he's still doing it, and he's, yeah. he's almost ageless in that way. Though I mean, I'm sure he looks a lot different. But uh, hey, he's been around forever, and good stuff. He was also in uh, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, which is another movie we should probably do at some point. He plays Martini, hmm. and uh, good stuff. He's also opposite Schwarzenegger in Twins and um, Junior, I think. And then he was also in uh, like Romancing the Stone and The War of the Roses. Uh, which I think he directed one of those, and he directed this one too. Um, so he's a he's a talented guy. Hmm. Definitely. Glad we did it. Me too. Yeah. So that's our Mother's Day special from the Actual Anarchy podcast. We run actualanarchy.com and readrothbard.com. Please do check out uh, us on YouTube. You can subscribe to us there. Uh, we're also on i or. It was, it was called iTunes. Now it's called Apple Podcasts. So look for us there. Give us a rating and a, a comment. That would be great. Um, anything else that we can mention before we sign off, Robert? Mm, we got a Patreon. We've got a YouTube channel. All that stuff. Anywhere you find us. Uh, if you could mention us on social media. If you could talk about us on Facebook. We do appreciate it. Oh, yeah, we've got the um, Twitter, Actual Anarchy, and, and uh, Trubster, that's T-R-U-B-B-S-T-E-R, so at Trubster or at Actual Anarchy. That's right. Um, the Twit Zone, the Twitter. That's right, babies. And uh, always remember cows! Chipmunks. C H I P M U N K. We're the chipmunks. Guaranteed to brighten your day. Do 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 do.
Do, 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 do.